That way it's always God who receives the glory. It's always Christ who is magnified. And I would say this, when you share the gospel, don't ever preach a gospel of moral reform. People do not need to clean up their lives in order to be saved by Christ. They are saved by Christ who will then clean up their lives as they study the Word of God and live by the Word of God. So don't fall into that dangerous pattern of calling people to clean up their lives to get right with Christ or simply to add Christ so he can better their situation. That is not the gospel. All right, well, it is another uh, blessed Lord's Day. And uh, it's always good to see you as we come together on uh, Sunday mornings and uh, just to know that we have the wonderful opportunity and the freedom to gather together as God's people. And so uh, thank you for joining us. And I'm very excited to get back into uh, Luke's gospel. Uh, every week that it, we uh, come together, I'm just uh, praising God that we have the opportunity to open his word and uh, to read it, to study it, to proclaim it, uh, to have the whole thing in front of us. I know we were talking about, or as Peter was sharing, about uh, missionaries, uh, specifically this morning uh, in other countries. Uh, you know, many of the Christians there don't own their own copies of Scripture. Some of them maybe have one copy or just portions of it, and they long to have the Word of God, and yet we have the wonderful opportunity uh, to have it. And so um, just thank the Lord that we are able to come to His Word this morning and open up the Gospel of Luke and uh, see what we have in store for us today. You know, before we get into our study of Luke chapter 11, I want to uh, ask you if you know what the connection is here. There's uh, three things uh, up on the screen, and so I'll ask you if you know what the connection is between fad diets and New Year's resolutions and quick fixes, right? Um, you know, if anyone think they know what the connection is? They don't work, yeah. Yeah, beyond the pulpit, I've got to lift my glasses here to see. They, they don't work. They usually don't work, right? Fad diets, we can look at that and say, well, we know what that's about. People make extreme changes. Uh, they look for rapid weight loss. And uh, in most cases, uh, you find that people gain it back. And uh, unfortunately, some gain even more than they lost. Uh, people become frustrated. They can become unmotivated. Uh, many will just kind of give up on the whole health process and kind of get back, and some will get back into the rut when the next um, fad diet comes to town. Uh, resolutions, I'm sure we've all been guilty of this. I know I have. Uh, you make a resolution, maybe it's some kind of life change, uh, your health, your finances, or a relationship, whatever it might be. Uh, you start out with a bang, you're all excited and just, you know, gung-ho through the first couple of weeks of January. February comes and you're still okay, but slowing down. By the time March comes around, whatever you bought for, you know, health equipments and a yard sale and, you know, you're just uh, doing whatever it is that you did before and uh, that happens. I mean, you just kind of fizzle out and then you find yourself making plans uh, for the next year. So you've got like 10 months of planning to see what resolution you're going to keep uh, for two months in the following year. Uh, quick fixes, I don't know if you can see this, that's a crack in plaster or brick, a couple of band-aids over that. Uh, now, sometimes uh, you have a repair that needs to be made, and it is just a quick fix, uh, something that you think was major, and then somebody comes in to repair it, and they tell you, well, all it needed was this, it's back to normal, everything's good, and uh, you praise God when you have those quick fixes that actually work. Uh, but most quick fixes, and what I have in mind here, are those things where we're kind of putting a patch or a Band-Aid on a larger issue. Uh, it could be a home repair, it could be a car repair, it could be a health issue, whatever it might be. And uh, often we will make that quick fix and then forget about it. And we allow that quick fix to become something more permanent than temporary. Uh, I'm reminded of this when I'm driving down the street and I see cars with three regular size tires. And then there's like one little black glazed donut on one of the uh, tires there. And they took that, that's not a full size spare, they took that little spare tire and uh, they're driving around on that for weeks, maybe months. And uh, I... You know, praise God that I have a full spare, uh, so you don't have to see when I don't go and take care of flat tires, but, um, you know, it's not meant to be a long-term fix, and, and that is what the, the connection is with all of these things, is they are temporary, and initially it sounds good. Initially, it, it meets the need. It suffices whatever it is 
uh, that, that is the issue. But for the long run, it's not the answer. You need something that is more substantial. You need something that is going to be permanent. And when we come to Luke 11 this morning, that's what we find as we're going to be studying uh, verses 24 through 28. Uh, as we look at this, we're going to see here um, another parable that uh, as Jesus is continuing to teach, uh, he has cast out a demon, he has been questioned as to his authority to do uh, such miracles, and now we see that Christ is continuing that thought as he teaches a parable about a demon who leaves a man but then returns with seven more demons, even more wicked than the one who left. Beginning in verse 24, we see Jesus says, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through watery places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. You know, as we look at this parable, this is another illustration of a spiritual condition. And this one goes from bad to worse. And as we're looking at this text this morning, what looks initially good, what looks like a, a reform of a life, is actually just setting up this individual for more problems in the future, greater problems than they had before. You know, the, the casting out of the demon is kind of the, um, the, the, the springboard to a, a greater teaching. We're going to talk about this, what it means to, to have this demon cast out and what Christ meant when he said seven others will come in. But ultimately what we're looking at here, and I believe that Christ was getting to his point, is this, that it is the hopelessness of moral reform. That if you are just trying to clean up your life to be right with God, you are trying to conform to morality, to some kind of biblical understanding of morals or ethics, you know, Judeo-Christian morals and ethics, if all you're doing is conforming to that, if you are following a pattern of morality, but there's no inward transformation, you are in a hopeless state. It's not enough to just clean up your life. You have to have a transformation that takes place. And so as we look at this parable, I believe this is the greater teaching uh, that we see this morning. And so as we look at the hopelessness of moral reformation, we're going to break it down into two points. The first one is the hopelessness of moral reformation. We'll find that in verses 24 through 26. And then in 27 and 28, we'll see the blessing of spiritual transformation. Okay, so the hopelessness of moral reformation and the blessing of spiritual transformation. Now before we get into this, let me go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study in Luke chapter 11. Father, we do come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for giving us another opportunity to open your word and to be able to read it and to make sense of it. We know, Lord, that we can only do that because your Holy Spirit dwells within us. He is our teacher. He is our counselor. He is our guide. He gives us understanding. He gives us wisdom. He gives us the, the true meaning of the text. And so we pray this morning that your spirit will do his work in our lives. That as we come to your word, we will learn what it means and we will practice what we are hearing this morning. We will put it to use. And that we do this, Lord, for the glory of your name, for growth in our own lives, and so that we can be examples of salt and light to those around us and share with those who need salvation through Christ that it's not enough to just clean up their lives, that they need to be transformed from within, not just to become a whitewashed tomb and have a great an exterior facade, but to be rotting on the inside, but to be renewed, to have that genuine uh, residence of the Holy Spirit within them so that they will be new creations in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come to the hopelessness of moral reformation, we see here that it says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, 
Okay, so we're just going to talk about that for a little bit. So, so Christ had just cast out a demon. Remember, Scripture tells us that this man was dumb or mute, depending on the translation that you have. And so because of the possession by this demon, this man was not in full possession of his mind or his body. He wasn't controlling his mind or body. That was under the control of this unclean spirit. And so Jesus sets this man free. And of course, as we saw earlier in the text, uh, the blasphemy that came from the Pharisees saying that Jesus did this because of the power of Beelzebul, because of a wicked source. And Christ destroyed that accusation and demonstrated that what he does, he does by the finger of God. And so those who saw this man being set free from this demon would say, this is a good thing. That this man used to be possessed, he used to be under the influence of Satan, under this evil spirit, and now this demon is gone. The man has come back to his senses. He's in his right mind. And of course that is a good thing. But the question that we have to ask, not just for this man, but for anyone who's in a similar situation, and we'll find here later on in the, in the message, not just when it comes to demonic possession, but when it comes to cleaning up your act, cleaning up your life. Is exercising a demon or is moral reform enough to secure a place in the kingdom of God? Does that make this man right with God just because there is the absence of an evil spirit? And the short answer is no. It's not enough to just have these negative things removed from your life, whether it is a demon or negative habits or bad habits or, or uh, wrong views that you once held. You need to have a spiritual transformation that takes place. You need to have this, this um, transaction that takes place where the old demon is cast out, the old resident, and then the new comes in. The old master is evicted, and the new master comes in to take up residence in the heart of a transformed person, and that new resident needs to be the Holy Spirit. So more on that in just a little bit, but when we look at this man, the spirit is gone. This evil spirit has been cast out. And so the assumption is, is that this man is clean. And what Christ says later on in the text, it says here that this man had everything swept clean, that his house was put in order. There was a spiritual uh, house cleaning that took place, a spring cleaning spiritually that happened for this man. And so now that this man is free of this unclean spirit, you know, the thing that was holding him back, the thing that was enslaving him, he's been given the opportunity to have a fresh start. He's been given the opportunity to have a clean break and to, to have his new life begin because now that oppressing factor is gone. And, and this man, I'm sure, felt alive and new and free. He thought, this is a whole new stage in life. I'm no longer under this bondage. I no longer have this burden. This is no longer plaguing me. You know, there, there are greener pastures ahead. There are better days ahead. And, and, I, and I thank God the Lord, that I have this opportunity to make things better, to turn over a new leaf. Okay. But what happened to the spirit? We'll come back to the man's condition in just a little bit. But what happened when the spirit left this man? Okay. It says here, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. This evil spirit is now without a host. He is hostless. Okay. He's been spiritually evicted. He can't find anyone to possess. You know, the, 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 the uh, human host market is a very slim one at that time. You know, today, if you were to go on to any of the uh, real estate websites, you look at Zillow or Trulia, whatever you use, you'll see what's available in a certain area. You put in all those uh, different um, uh, parameters of what you want to find, the size of the house and the cost and the location, all these things. If you want you know, X amount of bedrooms, you want a pool, you want forced air, and it will show you what's available. And it's pretty, pretty obvious today that there is uh, not a lot available out there, at least in Southern California, that's affordable. And so when you look at this, this demon, though, as he's looking for the, the options out there, there isn't anything out there. And so this demon is roaming. It says that this demon is passing through waterless places, dry places, places you, want, you wouldn't want to, to make that your residence. He's seeking rest. He's restless right now because he has no place to dwell or it has no place to dwell. And so because it can't find a place, it wants to go back to the original host. 
You know, when you look at this idea of this craving, you know, that Greek word there is zatun. It is not just to seek, but it is to crave. I don't know if you've ever had any strong cravings, but if you have a strong craving for something, something else doesn't satisfy. It just doesn't work. I know I talk about food too much, so let me not talk about food. You can tell what I crave, especially right around 1130. That's when I usually have lunch, and so right now it's um, getting to that time. Well, let me go there anyway. Let's say you really, you're craving a really good steak, right? Maybe it's a porterhouse, maybe it's a T-bone, maybe you want tri-tip, I don't know. You want brisket, and then somebody says, you know what, for tonight, let's just have a bowl of mac and cheese. Like, I don't know about that. Like, is there real cheese in that, or is that boxed? Is that going to be baked? Is there bacon on top of that? Because even that won't suffice. If you want a steak, then that's not going to suffice. One time I was really craving a soda, and all I had was water, juice, and iced tea. Doesn't cut it. I mean, when you have that craving, whatever it is, I mean, if you are craving something, you don't, you don't find satisfaction until you have it. Now, sometimes our cravings are not sinful. Sometimes they are. For this demon, this demon was craving someone to control. And it would not rest until that craving was satisfied. It was searching. It was going through waterless places. It was without rest. It found nothing. And so it said to itself, I need to go back to where I came from. Now, you know, I mentioned that these, these demons are really spiritual parasites. Uh, out of curiosity, has anyone ever seen this TV show, Monsters Inside Me? For some people, I think you might not want to watch it. So let me just give you that disclaimer right now. Uh, I think it's a very interesting show. Uh, it is a show that will focus on maybe one or two individuals uh, who have been plagued with parasites. And it gives you their story of how they got it and how they realized they had it and the treatment. And sometimes people, they get rid of them. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they go back to their regular self. Sometimes they have lifelong conditions. And uh, whether they're bot flies or tapeworms or scabies mites or hookworms or ticks, I know some of you are just like, oh, you just need to stop that talk right now. The point is this. They are parasites that need a host. They will die without the host. And when they invade the host, they bring great harm to that host. They live off the host. They eat the host. When it comes to the demon, the demon is a spiritual parasite. This demon is seeking a host, someone to invade, someone to control, someone to spiritually devour. He was just cast out. He has no place to go. He wants to come back because he needs someone to possess, someone to control. This is not something that is, is uh, unfamiliar in Scripture. When you look at the, the um, account of the men who were possessed in the Gadarenes, Matthew chapter 8, verses uh, 28 through 32. When he came, this is Christ, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. As these demons realized that they were standing in the presence of the Son of God, they understood a couple of things. First of all, they knew that there was condemnation in their future. Have you come to torment us before the time? We know we have no authority before you. We know that we are condemned before you. We know that there's a day coming when we're going to be confined to a prison and we cannot escape. That's not the time, is it? It's too early. Have you come to torment us before that time? And because they know Christ is there and he has the power to cast them out, they're a little proactive. If you're going to cast us out, at least allow us to go into this herd of swine. 
don't cast us out and just leave us homeless, hostless. Allow us to go into this herd of pigs. We also learn from this passage that the demons need approval. They can't just do what they want to do. Satan and his demons are not all-powerful. They do not have all authority. They have limited authority. They have limited reign. They have limited dominion. But there are certain things that they just cannot do without the express consent of Christ. May we go into these swine? Will you give us permission? Will you cast us out of this man but into this herd? That's better than being hostless. If we can't be in a human, at least let us dwell in these pigs. We'd rather be in a herd of pigs than being without a host. And so that gives you an idea of the restlessness of this unclean spirit. He's not finding any opportunities to go into someone else so his decision is to go back to the host that he was originally in. Now this condition of this man who was once demon-possessed seems to be good. This man is now demon-free. His house has been swept. His house is in order. But his house is still empty. There's nothing in it. There isn't a new host that came to replace the previous host. So this demon goes back to this man who was clean, and guess what? This man is going to have more house guests. When we look here at the passage as it continues, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Okay, this man's life seems to be in order. Things are looking good for this man. He's had a life change. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. You know, this unclean spirit returns from, from seeking a new host, from being restless and craving to possess someone else. And when it comes back, it finds a clean house. It finds a house ready for occupancy. There's no one in there. This man is enjoying his freedom. He's enjoying his new life. And he's completely unaware of what is about to happen. He doesn't realize that he's in for a devastating setback. This demon returns and he finds an opportunity to take up residence. And, and this man who thought he had a new lease on life is actually going to have a more destructive tenant move in. It's going to completely destroy this man. And why is that? It's because he was swept, he was clean, he was organized, but it was all superficial. The word there to describe this man's condition uh, comes from the word where we get cosmetic. Okay? Cosmeo or cosmos. It means to arrange or to decorate, to, to adorn or to ornament. Okay, you know? How many times have you seen a person with and without makeup and thought, that's a big difference? Now, Peter was sharing with us that uh, in other countries that someone who shames another, at least perceiving to shame them, is considered the worst offender. So I'm really glad that I didn't bring any photos for you to see of with and without makeup. Uh, I did look up some examples this week. I was curious. And so I looked at some examples of uh, with and without. And uh, there were, you know, influencers from social media, and there were musicians and actors and athletes and different people, and they showed a before and after. Now, um, the majority of those examples were women, um, so that's, you know, it's just the way it, it goes. And uh, you look at one example, and she's all done up real nice, and you look at without, and you're like, is that the same person? I mean, things are different. I don't know if you've ever seen these videos where they show kind of a, um, a time-lapse where a, a lady is, is there without makeup and then she starts to put everything on and they show the before and after and you're just like, I, I didn't even know how you get that from this. A lot of people would call that false advertising. Like, wait, wait a minute here. You don't look even remotely the same. Now listen, I am not saying anything negative about wearing makeup. Um, hey, I mean, there's, there's a way to do it and, and I'm not against it. But when you don't look the same, when you take it off. That could be an indication of a problem. Okay? Now, that happens. And, and, and so some people were just unrecognizable and 
and some looked a little scary. I mean, that was like, wow, that's, 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 that's huge because they don't look the same. What the public sees, what people see on the, the external is not an indication of what they really look like. And it's certainly not an indication of what is going on inside. It's a false front. It's a facade. Now, we're used to seeing that, especially in our country. I mean, the, the, the hair and beauty industry the, is huge, billion-dollar industry of, of offering products so that you can hide your blemishes. You can put a better presentation of who you are out there. And it's not just women. It's men as well. I have met some guys who are bigger divas than their wives. I mean, they spend more time in front of the mirror than their wife does. There was one time where we went to a summer camp, right? Summer camp, teens and some counselors. And there was one counselor there, one guy in our cabin. And I was like, dude, you have been in front of the mirror for 45 minutes trying to fix your hair. You barely have any hair to fix. I don't know what you think you're combing. I don't know what you think you're spraying. It looks exactly the same. No, it's different. I mean, his hair was shorter than mine. And here he is in front of the mirror. I'm like, what are you, we're at camp, man. There he is right there just trying to get everything just right. It's not just women, it's men. We, we in general want to present. We want to, we want to give a good presentation. I mean, just you know, as we're here this morning, as I look out, I think it's safe to say as I'm looking out at all of you there, you showered this morning, you brushed your hair, you put on some makeup, you chose some nice clothes. You didn't come here you know, right out of bed. I don't see bedhead. I don't see the crust in your eyes. I don't see, you know, you cleaned up. Why? Because we don't go out into public like that. We want to get cleaned up. Sometimes we really are trying to hide things. It's not just to freshen up. It's we're trying to hide blemishes. We're trying to present to others that we are different than what we know we are. And it's very superficial. You know, it's interesting. I, I told my boys before they got married, the older boys, and I said, you know, when you are, are, are even remotely interested in a girl, you need to think that she might be my wife one day. And they're like, wait, I don't even know this person. Like, but... The woman you marry, at one point, you're not going to know her. At one point, there's going to be a first meeting. There will be a first date. So always look at, you know, if you're looking at someone and you're, you're even remotely interested, start thinking with that in mind. If this progresses, then is this someone that I can see committing to for all my life? And so I would tell them, you need to ask those questions. You need to examine her. What are her attributes like? What are her characteristics like? What are her doctrinal views and they were like, doctrine? I'm like, absolutely. You can't marry someone that doesn't have the same doctrine. You're going to be miserable. And when you try to raise children and, you, and, and the wife says A and the husband says B, you're setting yourself up for trouble. I said, you need to, to consider all these things, all of these internal qualities, these doctrinal views. I said, and of course, there's the outward as well. I mean, you're going to see her when she's all dolled up and she's ready to go out and she's putting on her, her best appearance for you. I said, you kind of need to see her when she's not wearing makeup. You need to see her when those eyebrows aren't plucked and the mustache isn't waxed. <laughs> right? I mean, hey, let's be realistic. You don't always look your best. So you need to know who she is. She needs to know who you are so you know what you're getting. And if you love her, great. Then it doesn't matter if she's adorned with cosmetics. Praise God that our boys prefer less than more. But the point is this, before I get myself into any more trouble, <laughs> the point is this, is that people are in the habit of superficially adorning themselves, whether it's with clothes or with makeup or with dental work, whatever it is, we are used to hiding our blemishes to make ourselves feel better and to let others believe that we are in a better state than we are. When you look at moral reform, that's exactly what is taking place. This man who had his demon cast out, and we're going to see the connection here in just a little bit, between this casting out of a demon and moral reform, he thought he was in a good state. But the reality is, is that this man was setting himself up for disaster because he had done a spiritual spring cleaning, if you will, 
But he did not fill that void with something that was holy. And that left himself open for a great spiritual downfall. You know, when it talks about seven other spirits, right? he says, then it goes, this demon goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. Now we have to ask the question, are these literally seven more demons? Are, so are there going to be eight demons that are in this man? Is Jesus teaching that when one demon is cast out, they could come back with eight? I don't think that's what he's teaching. Perhaps this is like a spiritual hyperbole. Maybe he's exaggerating a bit for the point of the emphasis that this man's condition is going to be far worse, seven times worse. And this is not something that we haven't seen in Scripture before, whether it's a negative or a positive. Psalm 119, 164. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Proverbs 24, 16. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Daniel 3.19, that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Matthew 18.21, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? When you look at these passages, we don't look at this and say this is literally seven. There's the understanding that this is showing a greater number, a greater amount, an increase. Whether it's a furnace that's seven times hotter or forgiving someone who's offended you up to seven times, and what does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Saying your forgiveness needs to be unlimited. Don't limit it to seven times. So the point here when we come back to these demons coming back, seven more demons, probably not actual demons, literally seven more coming, so eight in total. This is to let us know that this man's condition is going from bad to worse. He was in a bad state when he was possessed because he's been given that, that, that brief moment of rest and cleanliness from this wicked presence, but he hasn't filled that void with the presence of God. Now he's in a position where he is going to see a greater calamity come to his life his condition was far worse than before his moral reform now how is this like moral reform i mean we've already seen here that this man was set free his house was free and clear from that possessing force he got rid of what was burdening him and he was now liberated he had that new lease on life but just because this man was free of possession does not mean that he experienced transformation. There was simply the absence of that evil presence for a period of time. It's, it's very likely that what Jesus was doing here was making a comparison to the nation of Israel. He was making a statement about the spiritual condition of the Jewish people. Remember when John the Baptist came before Christ entered into his public ministry, John was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was there at the Jordan. He was there wherever there was a large body of water, and he was telling people, you need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to be symbolically cleansed and be prepared to receive the Messiah. He's coming. Our long-awaited king, our long-awaited Messiah is at the doorstep. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And many people listened to that. Many people became disciples of John. And they prepared to receive the Messiah. And some did. There were some people who believed John. They were sincere. Their hearts were transformed. They received Christ as Messiah and they were saved. But that does not describe the vast majority of the Jewish people. The vast majority of Israel, they, they either rejected him from the beginning or there was a superficial acceptance. Remember when Christ was feeding the multitudes, feeding the 4,000, feeding the 5,000? They would come because they wanted something offered to them. They wanted the handout. And at one point, he even rebuked them. You're coming, and I'm summarizing here. You're coming because I fed you. You got free food. That's why you're here. You're no true disciple. You're going through the motions. You're saying yes and amen. You seem to be conforming to my teaching and accepting it, but what you really want is the handout. What's in it for you? 
That's the question you ask. I actually had somebody come to our door here after service one day, and she was asking questions about our ministry, and she said, what do you bring to the table? And I said, what do you mean, what do you bring to the table? She said, well, do you have rent vouchers? Do you have bus vouchers? Do you have a food bank? Do you have clothes for me? Do you have, and she went on and on and on. Do you play this kind of music? What we played this morning, she would have looked at that and said, absolutely not. She said, I like new stuff. I like, and this was years ago, she's like, I like DC Talk, I like Sonic Flood, I like all this new stuff. Do you have that? I'm like, no, but the music we have is doctrinally sound and glorifying to God. And it, it engages us in corporate worship. Oh, well, I don't know if I like that music. I'm like, I'll tell you what we bring to the table. I said, we love God, we believe his word is true, we preach it. We grow together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we bring to the table. She never came back because she wasn't really looking to be right with God. She was looking for her life to be changed by God in a superficial way. Can you pay my rent? Can you help me get clean? Can you give me you know, a bus voucher? Can you give me clothes? Can you put me through a job program so I can get trained and, and now have a career? That's not what the church is for. That doesn't mean that we can't help people who are in need, are in need, but that is not why the church exists. Jesus doesn't exist to help you have a moral reformation. The gospel isn't preached so that you can just clean up your act and conform with morals and ethics. The gospel is preached because you have that empty soul and you need the spirit to take up residence within you and transform you from within. That's what you need. This man did not have that. And, and the Jews had that opportunity. They had been told for centuries, your Messiah is coming. I'm sending the Redeemer. There's a new covenant. I'm going to soften your hearts. And there were times when the people said yes and amen, and there were other times when they just outright rejected God. You know, it's not surprising that as we've seen the Old Testament pattern of Israel's rejection of God, we see it in the New as well. Not long after John was preaching and people were repenting, you look at Matthew 27, verses 24 through 26. This is when Christ has been arrested and now he's been tried and he's standing before the Jewish people and Pilate is saying, what do I do with him? And they want him to be crucified. And Pilate says, I don't see any fault in this man. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Like, we know what we're doing. We want this man dead, and if you won't do it, we'll do it. And we will take the blame. We will bear the guilt. Not just us, but our future generations as well. So Pilate releases Barabbas and has Christ turned over to them to be crucified. It's nothing new for Israel. Exodus 24-7, Moses comes to them with the book of the covenant and he read it in their hearing. And the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Yeah, we love God. We're going to serve him. What happens in chapter 32? Moses is on the mountain. He hasn't come back quick enough for them. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. We don't know where Moses is. We don't even know if this God he speaks about exists. Make a God for us. We're ready to submit to another. Make the image. So what does he do? He collects the gold. The rings, the earrings, the necklaces melts them down and creates a molten image, a golden calf, and they worship it. Just earlier, they were ready to say, we're going to follow God and commit our lives to him. But what happens? It was superficial. It wasn't genuine. And when we come back to what Christ is saying here about the nation of Israel, they are like this man who has had this, this taste of reform, they've cleaned up their acts, they've heard the preaching of John the Baptist, maybe they've heard a little bit of Christ, and on the outside it looks like they're doing well. 
But on the inside, there was no real embracing Christ as Messiah. They had their houses swept and clean in order, but they were still empty. They were still vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one because the Spirit of God had not changed them. They had not truly believed in Christ. It was superficial conformity. And when you are in that condition of simply adding Christ to your life, of cleaning up your acts so you are falling more in line with biblical teaching, that does not equate with salvation. To just clean up your act does not mean you are saved. You still have this emptiness within you and you have this void that needs to be filled and if that is not filled by the Spirit of God, it will be filled by something wicked. And if you die in that condition, your state is worse than the first. You know, for many people today, believing in Christ is nothing more than spiritual reform. They look to Christ as an example. They look to him for support. They look to him for guidance. And I'm not saying that we as Christians, genuine believers, don't look at the example of Christ. We absolutely do. But he didn't come to this world simply as a moral example. Of course we look to him for support. Of course we look to him for guidance. We look to his word. But we're not just looking to him as a guidance counselor. We're not just looking to him as some kind of self-help coach. But that's the mentality of many people today. That Jesus is in your corner cheering you on. This is an article I read on Friday, just a few excerpts from it. It was on a website called activechristianity.com. And the title of the article was, Jesus Can Help You. So they offered three points of encouragement. Now listen, this might sound to you like it's doctrinally sound. But when you really look at what they're offering here, what they are sharing, it's that Jesus is there to cheer you on. Not to make you a new creation. Not to transform your soul. It's he's there as your coach. He's there as your cheering section. And because he went through it, he's there to empathize with you so you can go through it as well. It says, the Bible clearly explains that while on earth, Jesus was truly a man just like you and me. He had emotions and his own personality. But even more importantly, he experienced firsthand the base dark forces that are found in, the, in man because of the fall. Well, depending on what they mean by that, we can say, well, that's true. He came to earth. He took upon himself humanity. He knew what it was like to be tempted. But it goes on. It says, he knows your battles. Think about him, how he himself had battled against this meaning the difficulties of life. During the approximately 30 years while he was a man, he used his days to overcome the sin that dwelt in him. As soon as I read that, I had to stop and reread it and think about it. What do you mean the sin that dwelt in him? Jesus had no sin. There was no sin dwelling within him. But this article reduces Christ to a sinful man who's struggling with things in the world. During the approximately 30 years while he was a man, he used his days to overcome the sin that dwelt in him and which could tempt him. And then the third point is he is following along with you. Now he is in heaven and is following along with you. He is there with the Father praying for you so that it will succeed for you just as, as it succeeded for him. Meaning that you will have victory just as he had victory. They were not talking about victory on the cross. They were not talking about victory over sin and death. They were talking about Christ overcoming the negativities in life. This is moral reform. This is just adding Jesus to your life to make your life a little better. There's another article that was talking about spiritual house cleaning by a self-proclaimed faith and victory coach. And she offered all sorts of prayers and phrases and claims and proclamations and formulas that you had to recite word by word, in every house, in your room, in your car, everywhere you went, otherwise they wouldn't work. It had to be in every corner of your house. And if you said these things, then you got rid of all of these things that she mentioned on her list, then you would be spiritually clean. Okay? Now let me just say this, I'm gonna give you a brief um, sampling of what she says you need to do. Some of these things as Christians we would say, absolutely we should not be involved in this. Absolutely we should not possess these things. But her point is this, you get rid of these items, you pray these prayers, and you're all good with God. You just do a house cleaning, you make a claim, and now you're right. And these things can never come back to haunt you again. 
That's a summary of her entire website. So here's what you've got to get rid of. Horror, murder, and crime movies, vampire movies, vampire romance novels, Harry Potter books, anything with sorcery or magic, yoga books, yoga's based on occult worship, pornographic movies, DVDs, magazines, books, Fifty Shades of Grey, sexual fantasy. You have to get rid of tribal decor, dream catchers, voodoo dolls, totems, Indian wedding vases, kachina dolls, African masks, wooden carved items with tribal faces or animal spirit gods, which you got on souvenir from vacation, she says, uh, Mexican sun god decor, whether it's Mayan or Aztec, uh, anything New Age or occult, witchcraft, crystals, books, decor, clothing with symbols, upside-down stars, Hindu elephants, yin and yang symbols, uh, Buddha, statues, incense and incense holders, statues and pictures of Catholic saints, rosary or prayer beads, candles to saints, demonic video games, Dungeons and Dragons, demonic music, especially Black Sabbath and ACDC, personal... Now, now, now some of that, we look at that and go, well, no, of course, a Christian has no business owning some of these things. Okay, but look, personal items from a former owner of the house uh, which are possibly cursed or have a negative attachment, such as finding old whiskey bottles. Good luck charms, rabbit's feet, clovers, even in, even in your garden, can't have clovers. Horseshoes on the wall for luck, anything you wear, display for luck. Repent now and throw them away. Uh, things that she calls soul ties. Soul tie items from former lovers or former close relationships, jewelry, rings, gifts, love letters, emails, text, remove and delete. Uh, furniture that may have had idol worship on it or was in a house before you that was cursed. So if the furniture you didn't buy brand new, you have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal if that was used in some kind of ritual sacrifice. Guns, knives, or weapons that may have been used in a murder or blood sacrifice. Again, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you death-related decor, uh, a whole a section on, on Freemasons, Masonic cult items. She says, this will have to go through the courts of heaven if you were a Freemason or had someone in your bloodline that was a Freemason. So if somebody you know in your family was a Freemason, then you have to somehow go before the court of heaven to have that spiritually cleansed. Witching rods, pendulums, Ouija boards, mood rings, magic eight balls, uh, collections or decor that include occult characters such as fairies, dragons, goblins, elves, mermaids, monsters, vampires, and Smurfs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The Smurfs are going to spiritually pollute your house. Angel decor that are angel items that are female. It's okay to have eye or statues or pictures of masculine angels, but not feminine angels because the male angels are what are presented in scripture, male names. So a female angel is right out of the question. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. Finally, remove Starbucks coffee and anything to do with it because Starbucks coffee has the demonic water spirit, the mermaid goddess, as their symbol. If you drink Starbucks coffee, guess what? Your spiritual house is not in order. But if you get rid of it, as well as the Smurfs and everything else, then you're good. Now look, we're laughing, but people read this and believe it. Oh, if I just cleanse all these DVDs, I get rid of these books, I get rid of these, these images and this coffee, then I'm good. Really? It's not what goes into the man that pollutes him. It's what comes out. It's not just immoral reform. It's not just cleaning up your act. It's not just the removal of the presence of things that appear to be evil, and some of them are. It's more than that. It's not just a superficial, moral, ethical reform. They miss the entire point. In both of these examples, people are trying to improve their lives by removing harmful or hurtful or evil things and simply adding Jesus to the mix. Adding him as a life coach, as a cheerleader, as an empathetic friend, repeating some kind of faith-based mantra or incantation. That doesn't work. That's not the way transformation works. Now we look at that and say, well, that's silly. But think about this. How many people do you know, maybe even Christians, who think that getting right with God includes some of these things? You know, taking on new health habits, changing their diet or, or working out more, becoming a champion or an advocate of social issues. They really want to just help by becoming a social advocate. They want to get involved in humanitarian efforts or projects. Maybe they change their affiliation with a political party. 
Well, I used, to, I used to support that political group. Now I support this political group. I'm right with God. Really? Is God affiliated with any political group? I don't think so. Maybe it's a change of work, a new job, a change of location where you live. Maybe it's continuing your education or, or a new relationship. Getting rid of bad habits, smoking and drinking alcohol, caffeine, drugs, pornography, just kind of cleaning house. For some, it's going to church and just finding religion. Does that mean you're right with God? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us that there are sheep and goats, and we can't tell the difference at times. I praise God every time I come here on a Sunday morning that you're here and we have the opportunity to share the word of God and we're, we're gathered as the body of Christ. But I never deceive myself into thinking that every single person in this room is saved. People go to church for years and they're not saved. They give money to the church. They go on missions trips. They're involved in, in, in community activism. They might even be pro-life and pro-traditional marriage, but they're still going to hell. Why? Because moral reform doesn't save you. Moral reform at best makes you a moral pagan. David Garland says this in his commentary on Luke. Recognizing the power of evil does not mean that people turn to the truth. It also has the power to lure and deceive. Attempts to reform by one's own power are fruitless. We cannot change our spiritual condition simply by getting rid of certain things or adding certain things to our lives. We need to embrace Christ as Savior. We need to confess our sin. We need to be humble and say, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring to the table. Lord, you provide everything. You provide your law, which is a tutor that shows me my sin. You provide the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. You provide your Holy Spirit who will regenerate and who will indwell me. You provide the promise of glory. You provide the power to keep me. I provide nothing but my sin. That's where real transformation takes place. And the Pharisees, they were experts at moral reform, hopeless moral reform. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you were like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, this is John the Baptist, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They were coming to go through the, the, the motions, yeah, let's go take a dip in the Jordan. He says, you're nothing but a brood of vipers. You're not sincere. You're just going through the stages. You're going through the motions. Whitewashed tombs, you look real good. But on the inside, guess what? You're rotting and you're corrupt. You look great to everyone else, but I know who you are on the inside. That's one of the dangers of moral reform. It's hopeless because it does not fill the void with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. They go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. You know, it has been said by many people that we as humans have these internal vacuums that need to be filled, this space, a void that needs to be filled. And that's pretty evident when you study people. You, you pay attention to what people are seeking, they seek things out that, that they believe are going to make them feel accomplished, loved, wanted, important, successful, whatever it might be. And so they turn to various things and they fill themselves with that. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex, it could be money, it could be health, it could be gangs, it could be any number of things. It could be religion. But it doesn't change who they are. It still leaves them empty. You see, to, to, to cleanse your life through moral reformation but not spiritual reformation is a very dangerous place to be because you're deceiving yourself into thinking that a spiritual house cleaning is making you right. It's answering all the, the, the problems that you have. It's bringing the solution to your problems, and it does not. Again, at best, it makes you a moral pagan. 
meaning you look good, you look like you might even be the poster child for morality, but on the inside you're still a pagan condemned before God. It's not just cleaning up your act. It's not just casting out the evil. It's having that space within you, that spiritual space filled by the presence of God. And that is why this man in the parable, his situation was worse than it was before. He had the initial cleansing, but he never had a new master take up residence within. And this is what Martin Emmerich says in a journal that he submitted on the issue. It is not enough to have the power of one ruler routed. One must swear allegiance to the new sovereign. One must choose between kingdoms. It is the empty tenement that invites squatters. Maybe you've seen that around the neighborhood. You find a building that's not open, and right away what happens? People in the area go there and take it over. And then it becomes almost, I mean, it's unsanitary, and, and it's run down, it's vandalized. No one's there. No one's there to, to defend it. No one's there to clean it. No one's there to care for it. So whoever wants to come and use it, they just come and use it, and they don't care about it. They use and abuse. That's what happens here. And that's the point of this parable. If all you're looking for is that moral transformation, you are setting yourself up for a tremendous disappointment. Now, our second point is only a few minutes long. Matthew or Luke 11, 27 through 28. It's the blessing of spiritual transformation. And I've kind of been touching on this all the way through, so there isn't a whole lot to say here. But let's look at these verses. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We don't know anything about this woman in the crowd other than she offered a word of blessing. And the word of blessing that she gave was to Jesus' mother. In a sense, it's like saying, oh, your mother must be so proud. What a wonderful son. Your mother was blessed to have a child like you. And she was. We understand Mary was a woman who was blessed. She had an opportunity that no other person throughout history has had. That is to be the earthly mother of the Messiah. This is not to take anything away from Mary uh, in her obedience to God and how God blessed her and graced her to become the earthly mother of the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't speak anything negative about his mother either, but he gives a greater understanding here. He says, the greater blessing is not because she is related to me as my mother. The greater blessing is because she and others like her hear the word of God and observe the word of God, which demonstrates they've been transformed, that they are right with God. When you look at what Luke says about Mary, here's just a, a selection of verses from Luke chapter 1. And coming in, he said to her, this is the angel, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. We go on. It says, uh, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, this is when, they, uh, when Mary came to visit. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. That is John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in my God or in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Whether it was the angel or it was Elizabeth or it was Mary, they all understood Mary was in a place of blessing, that she was truly blessed to be the earthly mother of God. There's no doubt about that. But Mary also understood that she was not perfect. She was not without sin. She understood that the greater blessing was to have her Savior bring that salvation to her. And because she was given that wonderful privilege, that honor of bringing the Messiah into the world, she praised God in what is called her Magnificat. Luke 1, 38, and then 46 through 48. Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. It means, Lord, whatever you say, I will do. 
I trust in your word. I will be obedient to you. That's what Christ says in verse 28. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. She heard what God's will for her was, and she said, yes, and amen, I will do it. You speak, I will act. The angel departed from her, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. No doubt in her mind that she needed to be saved. She knew that. And she was rejoicing in God, her Savior. He had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She considers herself a slave before the Lord. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Listen, the real blessing that Mary received was not to be worshipped by humans. It was to be saved by the Messiah, to be indwelt by the Spirit, to hear and understand and obey the word of God. To know that she was, she was being obedient to the will of God and being used by God to bring salvation to sinful people. She is never the Savior. She is never the Redeemer. She is not the Advocate. She gave birth to him, and she understands her place, and she thanks the Lord for that, and she truly was a blessed woman. So Jesus tells this woman who was giving that praise to Mary, it's not about being my mother. It's not about being related to me. It's about hearing and doing. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's the, the litmus test. If you say you love Christ, if you say you believe in Christ, you will hear his word and you will do his word. And so this is what he says here as, he, as uh, we finish our text here. It continues in verse 29, but for today, as we end in 28, he says this, it's not about being uh, morally reformed. It's not about being related to me. It's about the transformation that brings about love and obedience. That's where the real blessing is. The Pharisees did not understand that. Pharisees rejected that. And that is why they were going to perish in the hopelessness of their moral reform. Let me close with this quote, and then as we close in prayer, I'm going to encourage you to examine yourself. Douglas Milne says in his commentary on Luke, Mere morality is no match for the powers of evil and temptation. Jesus alone gives deliverance from moral addiction and weakness. Human beings need more than moral education. They need spiritual regeneration. Our fallen nature is plagued from within by moral weakness a tendency to the dark side, and final despair. Where Christ enters in, he reclaims the whole person for God and righteousness. He brings peace, power, and purity on an increasing scale. This is what people need. They need peace with God. They need power from the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God. They need purity as they are being sanctified for God, and that can be given to us, and it will be given to us, by God himself when we come to Christ as Messiah. And then the true transformation takes place. Well, as I close in prayer, let me ask you some questions. Have you been trying to, to get your spiritual house in order through moral reform? Have you just trying to, be, to clean up your act a little bit so that God will see you in a different light or others will see you and, and see a real change in your life? If that's what you've been seeking, then you are like a hamster on a wheel. You're just spinning your wheels. You're not going anywhere. You are in a rut of hopeless moral reformation. If you understand that, that it's not moral reform and you embrace Christ and you know it's not just cleaning up your act that saves you, then let me encourage you this. Remember that your acceptance before God is never based on your performance. It's based on the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, in your place. And that every time you, you, you think about how great you're doing, what a wonderful, you know, godly day you're having, you have to realize that's because of who you are in Christ and not your own energy, not your own wisdom. And when you are horribly failing God, you're sinning, you're giving into temptation, you need to realize you are still loved by God, still his child, not because of your works or your lack of them, but because of who you are through his son, Jesus Christ.
That way it's always God who receives the glory. It's always Christ who is magnified. And I would say this, when you share the gospel, don't ever preach a gospel of moral reform. People do not need to clean up their lives in order to be saved by Christ. They are saved by Christ who will then clean up their lives as they study the word of God and live by the word of God. So don't fall into that dangerous pattern of calling people to clean up their lives to get right with Christ or simply to add Christ so he can better their situation. That is not the gospel. Let me close. And again, I ask you to examine yourself and just ask the Lord for whatever it is you need today. Thank him for what he's done for you. Ask him for mercy and grace to save you. But most of all, we pray that he's glorified as we understand there is only one way to truly be satisfied, and that is through Christ and Christ alone. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to see the hopelessness of moral reform. Father, I pray that for those of us who are here today who have salvation in Christ, that we would not backpedal and find ourselves trying to perform for you or perform for others. You have created us. You have made us new in Christ so that we would bear fruit, so that we will be obedient to you. But that is the fruit of our salvation. It is not the basis of our salvation. Father, I pray as we continue to share with others who need Christ that we never preach moral reform to them, that we tell them there's nothing they can do to be right with you, that they can only come through Christ and that they have to lay all of their faith, put all of their trust upon the finished and perfect work of your Son. Father, there's someone here this morning who needs that, that, that reconciliation with you. They need to be restored to you. They need to be made right with you. They have an empty spiritual house. They have tried to be right with you or with others through their own means, through their own reform, through their own spiritual house cleaning. Father, I pray that you would just humble their hearts and open their eyes and, and show them the need to embrace Jesus Christ, that they would call upon you for mercy and for grace and for salvation. And we know that you will not deny any who come through your Son. Father, as we close this morning, I pray that we will continue to think of these things, to act upon them for the glory of your name, for growth in our lives, and for a good testimony to those around us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name.